and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Is the air conditioning not on today? It feels a little warm, doesn't it? It's very warm. So this is so that we can long for the place that's better, that has air conditioning. They have it here. They must not have turned it on. They're trying to kick us out. So we're continuing and finishing up in the book. Now everyone feels okay, so now I'm seeing waving half again every, every row. Uh, we're continuing in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to finish up today, and you're probably thinking to yourself, uh, we have spent more time in the book of Nehemiah than it took Nehemiah to actually build the walls. So we have. We have done that, and we have gotten all the way through chapter 7. Not quite, actually. Uh, we've gotten uh, most of the way. We've gotten through 6 at the end, and you're like, wait, wait, wait. There's 13 chapters. How are we going to finish and talk about what, what happens next? I'm going to tell you. That's what I'm going to do. Because at the end, the, the walls are now done. So you can imagine the excitement for the people of Israel. They had gotten there, and it had been 152 years, and they had not, these walls were dilapidated, nothing was working, and Nehemiah gets them all to build these walls, and they finish, and they're so excited. But there's some history to it. So we've got to talk history for a little bit, maybe a lot of it. So we're going to talk some history. Most of us understand history and what's connected with that. How many of you um, can think of your parents' home? Did you grow up in the same home like your whole life? No, I did. I grew up in the same house, and then my parents, when I moved, uh, I was actually a pastor already, and they said, hey, we're selling the house. And like, my heart kind of sank a little bit, because almost all my memories were in a singular house, 603 East Circle Street. And so all my memories kind of go back from there. And I think about my grandparents' farm. I gave that example last week. That's, it's been in the family over 100 years. And you can go to that farm and think, there was a time where my ancestors, who were Norwegian Lutherans, they came all the way from Norway, and they built up that, you know, the one-room school, and they built up this tiny church, and on that property, they built the house, and the granary, and the barn, and the machine shed, and they built all this stuff, and you can say, okay, there was a moment where they sat on the Sioux River and said, this is kind of our spot, and it's kind of a cool thing. The people of Israel now are in Jerusalem, like the Jerusalem, and what that meant is there is a ton of history when it comes to Jerusalem, so you've got to bear with me a little bit here. So remember our our, our uh, three dates, the four dates. These are rough, but actually really pretty close when we talk dates. So 2000 is the father of all Jewish people. So keep that in mind. If you're going down a timeline, 2000 years before Jesus, that's when Abraham lived. So Abraham is 2000 years before Jesus. Then Moses, that's the next significant date. 1000 David. And then 500 is when the, all the cities got kind of destroyed and they went over to Babylon for 70 years. And now we're kind of in this area. I think in the 300s it would be. So I've got to talk a little bit about this history because it, it all connects with Jerusalem. Here is old Jerusalem, and if you can see kind of way up there, Mount Moriah, can you see that up in the corner? I don't think my laser pointer works on this screen. So just pretend, Mount Moriah up in the upper right. So this is the old town Jerusalem, and this is going to be connected in a second. Mount Moriah is over there. So Jerusalem has been inhabited as a city for probably about 6,000 years. And it's one of the older cities around because it has a hill, multiple hills actually, but it's got a hill, and they could easily defend it by putting a wall around it. And you see the Guyon Springs? It had a water source that could have enough water for about 2,500 people. So because of that, it has been inhabited for a long, long time. And so right around the time of Abraham, if you're thinking of Abraham, right around the time of Abraham, there's a guy named Melchizedek. Has anyone ever heard of this in the Bible? Melchizedek. He was the king of old Salem, and this was old Salem at the time, so about 2,000 years before Jesus. He is the king at that time. And so th this is happening now. If it's the same Mount Moriah, and if it's the same threshing floor, about 2,000 years before Jesus, God comes to this man named Abraham. He's 75 years old and says, you're going to have a son. 
And that promise holds, 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 holds for 25 years. And he's a 100-year-old man when he finally has this son. And 10, 12, 13 years later, God says the unthinkable to him. I want you to take this son up a mountain and sacrifice him to me. Did you notice the name of that mountain? Mount Moriah. So we're not 100% positive it's the same mountain, but it seems that it is just because of the connection with a threshing floor. But they go up Mount Moriah. You can imagine that. This is an inhabited city. Uh, the walls wouldn't have been quite that big. Um, an inhabited city. Abraham and his son go up to this lone mountain, getting ready to sacrifice his son, and of course God provides. And Abraham leaves a changed man. He's, he, God provides a ram. He goes down the mountain, and he is, becomes the father of the Jewish people. So you're with me so far. Okay, Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. He was living it up. He has 12 sons, but one of those is Judah, the name of this whole land later on. And one is named Joseph, like Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So um, Joseph, of course, moves all the people from here to Egypt. They live there 400 years, and they're there. And eventually God says, I want my people out of Egypt because they become slaves. And he sends an 80-year-old Moses to say, you have to lead my people out. So he does that, plagues and the whole thing. They move to the promised land. Moses can't do that. They have to wander for a while. They move to the promised land, eventually under Joshua. They attempt to take this city. So Joshua and his mighty army attempts to take this, this city, and they can't do it uh, because it's defensible position. They, they can't do it. So it is becoming now, you can imagine, like the envy of the Jewish people. They, they look at this city on a hill, and it's right in the center of their country, the promised land. They said, we really want that city. Well, nothing happens for like another 500 years. They would just have to look at it and go, man, what if we had that city? Along comes David. So David has this plan. He goes around the city with his army. And uh, this is kind of a cool picture. If you can, it's a little bit tricky to see. But here's a cool picture. These kind of roundy, uh, beat-up stones over here, that's part of the original wall from the Jebusites. And if you see that pointed kind of uh, angled wall right there, that is part of Nehemiah's wall. You can go to Jerusalem today and you can see, not a lot, but you can see a part that was actually part of the wall that Nehemiah and the people built. I think that's kind of awesome. We're just going to pause there for a second. So, but you can look at that. That's a significant wall. And the wall was so significant that when David came, it tells us like in Chronicles, David came and he's like, I'm going to take this city. They just start laughing at him. And they take their blind. They literally do this. This is talking trash in the old times. They take their blind and their lame and they put them on the, on the wall as guards. They're like, you guys are so pathetic and our wall is so awesome that our blind and lame can defend it from you. You can imagine how that would feel for David. He doesn't seem like he'd have an ego at all. So he starts to scheme. And he starts to think like, what am I going to do? We have to get into the city. And so he starts talking to his men and he says, anyone who can pull out my plan is going to be the leader of all my army. And so one brave guy says, I'm going to do it. And here's the plan. We don't even know what it was. They were trying for many, many years. They couldn't figure out what the Hebrew word meant when he said, uh, I'd have to look it up, but Atna, uh, I'd have to double check it. I don't want to say it wrong. But he had this plan. We didn't know what it meant. But then they discovered a guy named Warren, Charles Warren, discovers this shaft. This is not a, photo this is not a photograph, just so you know. It's a drawing. But the guy on spring was actually outside of the, the walls at the time. So you can see the Jebusite, Jebusite city walls. So it was out there. They had built a parapet around it to protect it. But David had this idea, like, what, what if I went through the spring 
like a Trojan horse, and we could send a man in, and that's exactly what they did. So they send a man in through the Gaian Spring. This is Hezekiah's tunnel. He dug that later on. That story is kind of awesome, too. Uh, The first guy to witness it said, this is the most pathetic engineering I've ever seen because if they would have gone straight, it would have been 40% shorter, but it makes like an S shape. So we don't know if they were following like a fissure in the rock or they just didn't know how to dig straight. But anyway, this is Hezekiah's tunnel. takes water to the other side of the thing. They go down this. They go up the shaft, and you can see that this is 10 yards. So this is like, uh, like here to the top right there. They had to climb up, like shimmy up this thing. I'll show you a picture in a second. Make their way in, and while they're talking trash... Here's a picture. It obviously didn't have nice steps when he broke in. Um, they make their way in. His leader goes all the way to the gates and opens them up. And David and his men rush into the city. And from that moment on, it is a Jewish stronghold. And that picture I showed you before where it had that big wall, they believe David's palace was actually right above on top of that wall right in that section inside the city, which is kind of cool, right? So David expands everything. I'm going to just go back pictures to help you out. David expands the city. This is where it gets its biggest under Solomon and David. But the walls of the city continue and they wrap around Mount Moriah. And the city gets bigger and bigger. And it's on Mount Moriah, many believe, like at the very spot where uh, there's a rock, kind of, um, what would you call that? Not ground rock, but bedrock. There we go. The bedrock on the top. And at that very spot, he says, this is where I want to build the temple. The Lord will not let him do that, but Solomon, his son, gets to build this temple. So let me skip a couple. This is obviously a rendering, I guess, but you can get a sense. It's not a real big temple, but it's inlaid with gold and silver, and it's just this magnificent thing so that when the people would come, they were just in awe to see this temple. And they build this temple. This is around 1,900, and it stays... And God says, you are my people. If you follow me, and and I will protect you forever. Of course, what happens, though? The people intermarry. uh, The people don't listen. And when I talked about Moses, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And you're thinking back of these old time, like, oh, that was 3,500 years ago. This is kind of pathetic. And I bet they just like chicken scratches. Just put this in perspective. It's 125,000 words. And they didn't have paper and typewriters, or they didn't even have computers they had to do it on animal skins. So he writes out like five of the top 10 longest books in the Bible on animal skins. And a lot of that is saying, this is, God says, I want you to live differently than the people around you. When the nations look at you, you're not going to marry with these nations. Uh, You're not going to work on the Sabbath. Um, You're going to have sacrifices to me. And the people say, yes, we will do that. Of course, they don't. And so just a couple hundred years later, the Assyrians come down and they obliterate all but two of the tribes. Remember, there's 12 brothers, there's 12 tribes, and all of them get obliterated except for two, just Judah and Benjamin. And he comes at that time, and they they still did not follow God, and he warns and warns and warns through his prophets again and again and again, but eventually uh, Babylon comes and they obliterate this temple. So this temple, as we know it, it does not exist. And when you see pictures of the temple, I'll show you a picture again. This is a recreation of it. You can see it in Israel now. Massive model. But this is the Temple Mount today. This is a rebuilt under King Herod, but that's 500 years later. This is not what Nehemiah built. What Nehemiah would have built was just kind of this pathetic wall and you know, got it to work. It was straight, though. It looked better. He builds this wall around the old town, and they, they're trying to figure out like, how to function. Has anyone grew up in the 80s and watched cartoons? All right, so this is two, this is two. That's kind of redundant because they only had it once a week in the 80s. So like when Saturday rolled around, you're like, be quiet, quiet, this mercer on. Um, now you can watch cartoons all day long. 
But one of my favorite shows as a kid was Gummy Bears. Gummy Bears, bouncing here and there and everywhere, flying high beyond compare. Right? This was the best. And the, the best part about Gummy Bears was not the actual show. I love the mystery involved that they had this small collection of people who are now gummy bears, and they would look back at the ancients, and they're like, these old people had it figured out. They had sleds, remember, that would go through all, they had this magic potions, they, had, they would go through these books to figure out what these ancient people had. So in our culture, whenever we look back at other cultures, we usually say, man, they were so primitive, right? For example, I just went to see, uh, not a couple years ago, what was it, Mesa Verde? And they're talking about that, that this is this amazing thing of technology. And I've told you this before, it's 900 AD. It's 1,000 years ago, and they made these, these houses by stone, and by hand, in the thing. There was no water, there was no aqueducts. They didn't even know how they watered like, their small crops. At the same time, you know, like 3,500 years later, earlier, 2,500 years earlier, or I mean, uh, 1,000 years earlier, they're building stuff like this. So I was not super impressed. So sometimes society advances, and I think our has. If you'd say technology, have we advanced? Yes. Mechanics, have we advanced? Leadership styles, have we advanced? However, societies don't always advance spiritually. And for the people in Nehemiah's day, so they, they're, they're involved in this, and they're looking back, and they go, the city is done. Now what? And they didn't know what to do because it had been so long since they had this kind of regular rhythm of worship and connection with God. They didn't even know what they were going to do. And they had been so afraid that when they moved back from Babylon, they just looked like the other nations. They just want to blend in, right? You ever gone to some place where you completely stick out? I'll give you one example, and now it's going to sound like I'm a racist person or something like that. But So in Appleton, Wisconsin, I think I said it's as diversified as Smurf Village. So there's 99% white people and uh, maybe 1% Hmong, because there's, uh, this is one of the places they went. When I would go down to visit my grandmother, she lives south of Chicago, and one of the places we would stop is the J.C. Penney Outlet. Has anyone ever been to this magical place that has something you never want to buy? Well, that's it. It doesn't even exist anymore. So we would stop at the J.C. Penney Outlet. My family and I, the station wagon, like from here to the Black Curtain, that's how long it was, seven white people would get out and go into the J.C. Penney Outlet, and we would be the only white people in the entire J.C. Penney Outlet. And as a kid, like my parents didn't think, my dad grew up south of Chicago, they just rolled. And my mom grew up in South Dakota, so she probably had to adjust a little bit, I don't know. Um, but we went there and I always was like amazed. Like, wow, I'm in a, for the first time in my life a minority. And so you kind of want to blend in, right? You just kind of just look unobtrusive, right? The people of Israel were trying to do the same thing. They were the minority in their own land and they just didn't want to rustle feathers and they, didn't wanna, they were trying to hide out so people didn't notice them. And their lifestyle was just like that. So what happens is they get done, and they're like, okay, what should we do? Ezra is the priest, and they decide, okay, we have to go back to the ancients like gummy bears, and we've got to figure out how, what we're supposed to be doing. And so they build this stand, and they start to read 100 of 25,000 words of Moses. This is what it says. So all the people came together. This is Nehemiah 8. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest, so they're going back to their calendar now, brought the law before the assembly. This is actually fall time, so we're getting close to where they would have been, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon. 
as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised God, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. In fact, it says they were distraught. And they didn't even know what to do because they heard about all these things they're supposed to be doing, but they weren't. And they they talked to him and said, this is not a time for grieving, this is a time of celebration. And during this reading, they discover some festivals, which is kind of fun, right? They have not done any of these festivals, but during this reading, they discover the Festival of Booths. So God commanded to remember how they had to wander in the desert for 40 years and eat manna and water uh, that he provided. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out into the villages or go out on the countryside and get these like branches and build these fake little booths and stay in it for a week. They read about this, they do it. And then a month later, they say, we should do something like the Day of Atonement. And so the whole assembly gets together and they confess their sins. They confess their sins before God and they said, Our, the people before us have not lived like you and we have not lived like you command. You ever been there? Like something just wakes you up and you said, you know what, I have not been living how God has called me to live. It's just this moment, right? You're just functioning in the world and you're trying to blend in and you're trying to blend in and you're trying to blend in and then suddenly there's this moment where you recognize, I haven't done it. Does God call us to just live in the world and kind of blend? Not at all. I'll give you a couple passages. He gives this metaphor. You are like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. He's talking to believers like you and me. He says, like, you remember the temple, and the temple's gone. We don't have that anymore, but he says, like, you are the temple that God has said. He's taking you, and you're a living stone in that temple, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. He continues in 1 Peter. But you are my chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness. Remember, this is how the world is living. God has said, I'm calling you out of that, and I want you to live in a different way. He says it again. This is 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. This is how you used to be. But when you understand forgiveness, and when you understand what God has called you to be, when you understand what Christ has done for you, you start to live your life differently. This is the old way you used to do it. This is the new way that you do it. He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God's expectation for his believers when they know forgiveness and they know what it means to be a believer is not just to blend in. What's the problem with that, though? What's the problem when you go somewhere and you're okay with one glass of wine and your friend wants six? What's the problem when you're at work and everyone is making crude jokes and you choose not to? What's the problem when all your friends live with their boyfriend or their girlfriend and they're having premarital sex and you say, you know what, I don't want to do it. What's the problem with that? People don't like it. You ever go out to eat with someone and you order like the Baconator and they order a salad? 
that, does that feel good? You ever go somewhere, like you have a roommate? Uh, I go to conferences, and no one likes it when you're the person who gets up early and you go running, right? And they're like, oh, come on. No one likes that. No one likes it when they see, like, they're like, oh, what'd you do? And they're like making fun of their spouse or something. They're like, ah, dork around. They're like, oh, I got some flowers for my wife. And the, the, no one likes this because what? If you live differently, the world is going to be convicted if you don't swear, if you don't curse, if you live a different way, the world does not like it. And we saw that in Nehemiah, right? I mean, the first six chapters of Nehemiah, all the people around saying, I can't believe that you're doing this, and they're making fun of him, and they're threatening him, and they want to hurt him. Jesus himself says, if you are my disciples, your family is going to hate you. The world is going to hate you. If you live in the light, no one likes to see that. It's like when you walk in your room and it's really dark and you flip on the lights. Everyone's like, oh, are you kidding me? That's what it's like when they see when you live differently. The world's convicted or convinced. If you live a life that walks with God, they're convicted or they're convinced that something should be different. I say convinced because a person who orders a salad, maybe the next time when you go out to eat with them, you're like, all right, you look pretty healthy. I guess I should order a salad. Right? You seem pretty happy. I guess you should do this. You seem to enjoy work. I guess I should maybe model some of the things that you have. But that's not always that easy. So the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, musicians, the temple, this is chapter 10 now, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of the Lord, right? So they start to, this is, they're starting to recognize we're not supposed to intermingle here. Together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand all them now join their fellow Israelites and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God. Of those 125,000 words, they're like, we've got to do something differently and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, decrees of the Lord our God. We promise, this is their promises, not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. We're no longer going to intermarry. This is consistently the problem that they had. When the neighboring people... This seems pretty simple, right? This is rule number two. When the neighboring peoples come to bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we're not going to buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. Like, we're going to recognize that this is... And do you think how they're going to feel like it? Just think about it. They live up on a hill. Just imagine you got this 50-pound thing, a sack of grain, and you go all the way up the hill. You're like, oh, at least I can sell it to the Jewish people. You get there, and they're like, no, we don't buy on Sundays. We don't buy on Saturday. You're like, we're not going to do it. This is not going to make people happy. And they go down for the Sabbath, the Holy Day. Every seventh year, we're going to forego working the land and we'll cancel all the debts. They read that in the Bible. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year to the service of the house of our God. So again, they take over this idea that we are going to take care of the temple. So what happened? They said, when confronted by God's law, we have to live differently. When confronted by God's grace, there's something that has to change. So what do you see here? All right, this should be an animal. Do you see an animal here? Everyone sees an animal. It's kind of a relatively famous picture. Do you see a duck or a rabbit? If you live in Castle Rock, you saw a rabbit because we see rabbits everywhere. We had a rabbit farm that broke loose here. All right, so you see a duck or a rabbit. Okay, so we see the rabbit. You can see the duck. Our point, right, as Christians, when we step into the world, for the Jewish people, God says, I want you to live so differently that the world is going to take notice of you and you just do your thing. But for Christians, God says, I want you to go out into the world. I want you to be light in a dark world. 
It's not so much that we just hole up on our little castle that we finish up in Castle Rock and just say like, okay, we just do our thing and the world will take notice. They're going to be convinced and they're going to knock on our door. God doesn't say that when we're in the New Testament. He says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And what does that mean? It means we're not trying to blend in. We're not trying to be rabbits in a duck world and look so close to the world that they can't tell the difference. Another way to put that would be just asking this. If you told your friend you're Christian, are they surprised? Why? Because you live like them. When they talk about this movie, you've seen the movie. When they make jokes, you've made the jokes. When they talk about something else, you're right there with them. When they talk about music that you listen to, when they talk about all these things, when they talk about where you spend your money, you dream about with them spending your money and all these other things. Our goal is not to be a duck in a rabbit world or a rabbit in a duck world so that no one notices them unless they go, oh, you are a Christian. God says in this dark world, we are showing people what Christ is. And when we finally get to our place, when you read the rest of Nehemiah, what's really interesting, the whole book is about building this wall. They don't talk about the wall. It's not like chapter 9, let's look at the wall again. Check it out. It's done. When the wall is done, they want to know, how do we follow God? And there's going to be a day when we're done in about two months. It's going to be really exciting. We don't have to set up again. That's going to be fantastic. And, you know, we're, we're going to have a place where you can go, and you're going to have a place where we're going to have Bible classes, and we're going to have a place. But the whole point is that we're not just staring at the building and go, wow, this is so awesome. The point is, now what? And for the people of Nehemiah's day, they said, now what? We want to walk with God so that the world can see. And when we... As a church, step out in the world. We want to take this light and don't say, come to us. We're going to take this light and we're going to go into this dark world so that people can ultimately see the thing that changes lives, forgiveness and love and acceptance that only can be found in Christ. And the way to do that is live a life that convicts or convinces. Amen.